Today we're going to read just a couple verses from uh, the book of Acts, chapter 2. Four verses. You can follow along as uh, I read from Acts chapter 2 and uh, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Uh, We're going to unpack that this morning and think about uh, that momentous day when the church began. So let's pray and ask God to uh, help us this morning. Lord, thank you for um, the opportunity we have to come together to worship you, Lord, to encourage one another, and Lord, to hear and receive your word. Lord, this morning, may we be like Samuel, who... uh, prayed and said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And Lord, may this uh, next few minutes not just be an academic exercise, but may the Spirit of God take the Word of God and uh, speak to our hearts. Uh, Lord, may we be uh, changed, may we be encouraged. Uh, Lord, perhaps uh, we need to be convicted this morning and open up our hearts and minds to your Spirit and uh, speak to us today. And we thank you for um, the privilege we have to uh, hear your word, uh, to study your word, and to respond to your word. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we've been looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. And as we've uh, gone up through the Gospel of John and into Acts chapter 1, I felt constrained to continue to study through the book of Acts. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 2 this morning. And we're going to think about uh, history. Uh, I remember my 11th grade teacher in in high school, and I went to a small private Christian school in Ohio, in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, Miss Eleanor Taylor, she's in her 90s now, she said history is his story. And it's God's story of uh, of life and the world. And we know the last chapter is written already in the book of Revelation, but it's important to know history. Um, we're going to celebrate America's birthday soon in a few weeks, and it's important to know the founding history of America, isn't it? It's important to know the history of your family. I don't know about you, if you've ever traced your roots. Uh, my dad, a number of years ago, traced the Clark family roots back to the 18th century. And uh, the Clark family came uh, over from uh, Scotland, on a boat with uh, Captain Alexander Clark. And he was the first ones to, to come over to North America. And we know that, we know the history of our family. We know the history of, of uh, the roots of our, our family. It's also important to know the history of a church. We're going to look at the history of the entire beginning of the church, but every local church has a history. I've shared this many times, uh, the history of uh, the place where we're worshiping here this morning. And so some of you have heard this several times, but I just think it's, it's fascinating. Uh, how did we begin? And so our roots go back to 1967. I've got the minutes of, here's the organizational meeting of what was Faith Community Church and then uh, became Community Bible Church. There were 29 people present for this meeting. Uh, they signed a paper to indicate that they were in favor of starting and building a new church. So 29 people came together. 
felt led by the Spirit of God to start a church. We then discussed the financing of the new church. Mrs. Hassett advised that the Union Savings Bank in Manchester, Michigan would loan us $40,000 with $10,000 down at 5% interest. We then discussed how much cash we could make available so we might come close to making, meeting the required 10000 The following people offered the following amounts. And their names are listed here with the amounts they gave. It ranged from uh, one person, $3,000, uh, down to uh, $10 and everywhere in between. So after they collected the money and got the pledges, uh, they had $7,713.62. By secret ballot, Reverend Tom Hicks was elected pastor of Faith Community Church by a unanimous vote. Here's my favorite part. The building committee was elected. It was to include all the men of the church. <laughs> so if you were male and you were there, guess what? Welcome to the building committee. You're on it. And... Uh, that's uh, that's how uh, our roots started uh, from uh, some people that had some faith in in God, and uh, uh, that's the way we're to live, aren't we? It says the just shall. We're not only saved by faith; we need to live by faith, and uh, we're we're blessed by by that. Well, this morning we're going to look at the beginning of the church, and uh, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, it all started on a day called Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost was a Jewish holiday. In Leviticus 23, there's listed seven holidays that the Jews were to observe. Kind of like our calendar. We have a number of holidays that we celebrate throughout the year. Uh, this was God's calendar for the Jews. And uh, three of those holidays, they were to take trips to Jerusalem to celebrate them. The Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, was one of them. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, and we're going to see this setting we're here in the first century. Uh, we're about 30 A.D. Uh, Jesus ascended to heaven in Acts chapter 1. And what did he tell the disciples? There was 120 of them. They were in the upper room. They said, he said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the promised Holy Spirit. And so there was 120 believers. Uh, the, the 11 disciples were part of that. And what were they doing? They were waiting but they were also praying. We discover that from Acts chapter 1. While they were waiting, they were praying. And that's a good lesson for us. If we're waiting on God for something, uh, we also what, need to be talking to him about it, don't we, and, and praying. And so it says they all joined together, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, constantly in prayer. And so they're, they're waiting. Um, Jesus said, don't leave till the Holy Spirit comes they take care of some unfinished business. Judas Iscariot is no longer a part of the 12. And so they cast lots and they elect Matthias as the 12th disciple. And that's kind of the setting. That's kind of the background. Uh, and verse 1 of chapter 2 says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together. The believers were all together. Now, there's the pastor's dream right there on one Sunday. If everybody could be together on one Sunday. They, they, were, all, they were all there, and uh, they were uh, waiting on the promise of the coming Holy Spirit. 
the word Pentecost uh, really has the meaning of 50. It's 50 days after uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And so some churches that follow a liturgical calendar would have celebrated a Pentecost Sunday a couple Sundays ago. Would have been um, about seven weeks after Easter. We're now nine weeks past Easter. So here's this, this celebration. And really the, the celebration of Pentecost was a celebration of bringing the harvest to God. And it was kind of be equivalent to our Thanksgiving. Uh, recognizing that that. All these blessings come from God. And so while the disciples are there and they're waiting, and now there's this uh, day of Pentecost that is on the Jewish calendar, we discover the sights and the sounds. Look what happened. And we read this in our scripture reading. Suddenly, this this is unexpectedly, suddenly... A sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So they're in a house. It doesn't say that there was a wind. It says there was the sound of a wind. You watch uh, the TV coverage of uh, news that covers a tornado. And they interview the survivors. And when they describe the sound of a tornado, more often than not, it's like it sounded like a freight train coming. So they didn't experience wind, but they experienced the sound. So suddenly there's this, there's this sound and it's, uh, like a violent wind that comes from heaven. It fills the whole house and then they saw something. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. So they heard this sound and then they see what looks like tongues of fire that come down and then it separates and it sits on top over each person's head. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This was uh, quite an event. And it's, it's God's one-time event of sending the Holy Spirit and the beginning of the church age. And now they hear this noise and they see the tongues of fire. And now they're able to speak in foreign languages. And uh, it amazes the people that are there. So, verse 5, Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. So, the city of Jerusalem during Pentecost celebration is bursting at the seams. Uh, the historian Josephus says the average uh, population of Jerusalem at that time probably was about 150,000. Because of the Feast of Pentecost, where Jews from all over the known land came, it was probably over a million So there were people from all over the known world that were in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And it says, when they heard this sound, that sound like a violent wind, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? These people are, are, are Galileans, and the Galileans weren't known for, uh, have a great reputation in that 
time in that first century. Uh, when it was discovered that they were saying the Messiah came from Galilee, somebody said, can anything good come out of Galilee? These are, these are unlearned, uneducated, unschooled fishermen, and now they're speaking in foreign languages. And here we have the list. It's like a list of nations and languages that they, they spoke. There's 15 of them. Uh, Parthenians, verse 9, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And so this amazing event, the sound of a rushing wind, uh, the visual image of tongues of fire sitting over each individual, the ability to speak in a foreign language. And all of a sudden, those that were attracted to that are trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Well, we look at the speculation, and there was some speculation about what was going on. It says, amazed and perplexed. They were stunned that they heard their, their, these guys speaking in their own language. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. <laughs> They're trying to figure this out. They're like, these people have been drinking. <laughs> uh, that's, that's what's going on here. And so in the midst of that, somebody stands up. And explains what's going on. And if you know the personalities of the uh, disciples, it's not a surprise that uh, Peter stands up and uh, gives a sermon. So let's let's uh, look at this uh, the sermon uh, that Peter gave. It's found in verses fourteen through uh, verse thirty-nine or forty. And you might read Peter's sermon. By the way, it was a spontaneous, spontaneous sermon, uh, kind of like what happened last last summer. If you were here, I was over at Maranatha and had our guest speaker all all lined up to come. And I'm I'm sitting in the worship service at Maranatha, and at about ten after ten, ten fifteen, I'm beginning to get texts and said. Uh, the guest speaker has not arrived yet. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's not good. And I right away went to all my emails and saw the confirmation and uh, knew that we had the right date and everything. And so um, if you're here that Sunday, uh, Alan, Alan Durheim got up and gave a spontaneous sermon on uh, Psalm 139. Yeah, uh, so uh, that's what Peter had to do. He, he, just, he just gets up and he says, let me tell you what's going on here. And he gives this sermon, and it probably takes less than five minutes to read, and some of you are thinking, perhaps, Pastor Ron, you should take a hint at that this morning. Uh, it had some pretty good results, too, that we'll, we'll get to. But here's my defense, um, and I just saw this um, jumped out at me. Verse 40, it says, with many other words he warned them. So we don't have the whole sermon. You know, he, he probably went a little longer than, than what's just in, in the text here. So here is Peter, and it says, Then Peter, verse 14, stood up with the eleven, raised his voice. So 
So there's no sound system, there's no microphone, so he's going to have to to turn up the volume because he's speaking to thousands of people that have been attracted by what in the world is going on. And here's uh, what where Peter then begins to share and explain what happened. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Let me tell you what's going on here. These people are not drunk. <laughs> They're not drunk. It, it's only nine in the morning, so um, that's, he says it's, it's a little early for that to happen. But how does Peter explain this? He goes back to the Old Testament, and he says this is a fulfillment from the prophet Joel. And hundreds of years earlier, the prophet of Joel wrote a prophecy, and as we're going to see, and some prophecies are like this, they have a near fulfillment, and they have a far fulfillment. And that's true in Joel's prophecy. Uh, The first part of Joel's prophecy was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. As we're going to read this, the second part of Joel's prophecy has yet to be fulfilled, but it will be. So Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2, Verses 28 through 32 in in Joel 2. Let me read it in the text here in Acts chapter 2. In the last days, this is what the prophet wrote. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs of the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. So the the first part of that was fulfilled. God poured his spirit on all people. The second part of that prophecy is yet to come and will be fulfilled when, when Christ comes again. And then verse 21, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter stands up and he's explaining what's going on here. And this is, this is fulfillment of prophecy from, from the prophet Joel. And he quotes uh, from Joel chapter 2. But then Peter gets right to the heart of his message. And so Peter preaches the sermon. He says, this is the fulfillment of prophecy But like any uh, message from Scripture, it needs to be Christ-centered, doesn't it? And uh, that's that's where Peter zeroes in on the person of Christ. Uh, That's the most important issue to settle in your life. Who is Jesus? And uh, Jesus is either who he said he was, uh, that he's the Lord, he's the Savior, uh, who came to die for the sin, our sins and we need to receive him, or if he's not who he's claimed to be, then as C.S. Lewis said, he's either Lord, lunatic, or liar. And so Peter is going to hold these people's feet to the fire as he preaches about who Jesus is and listen to it. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Some of them that were there listening had probably seen some of the miracles of Jesus. I mean, this is 10 days after Jesus ascended to heaven. Uh, The Gospel of John lists seven 
miracles that Jesus did. And then the Gospel of John concludes many other miracles did Jesus that aren't recorded in this, this book. But these are written that you might know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So some of these people that are listening had, had seen Jesus heal, had seen the blind see and the lame walk and the deaf hear. He says he was accredited by God through miracles, signs, and wonders. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. He's not pulling any punches. This this was the Messiah, and you killed the Messiah. And so Peter is talking about the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And I love verse 24. But God raised him from the dead. We're nine weeks out past Easter Sunday. In one sense, I wish uh, Easter Sunday and Resurrection Sunday was, was every, every Sunday. And it, it kind of is because the reason we worship on Sunday is because Jesus rose on the first day of the week. But here Peter is saying uh, that the tomb is empty. God raised him from the dead, freed him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. Peter says it was impossible for Jesus to stay in the grave. And we sing about that on, on, on Resurrection Sunday. Christ arose, low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior, waiting the coming day, Jesus my Lord. Vainly they watch his bed, Jesus my Savior. Vainly they seal the dead, Jesus my Lord. Death cannot keep his prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose. And that's what Peter's saying. Death could not hold Jesus in the grave. Well, he goes on to quote more Old Testament scripture. He's preaching to Jews who are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. So he's quoting the prophet Joel and said, today is a fulfillment, partial fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. But he also begins to quote David. And his listeners would have been very familiar with David. He starts out quoting Psalm 16, written by David. Uh, Look at it in verse uh, 25. David said this about him, about Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. We have hope. Where's our hope? Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. The resurrection is not only true for Jesus someday, but we're going to be resurrected someday. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Last part of verse 27. Who is David referring to? Who is the Holy One? He's referring to his descendant, Jesus. He's writing this a thousand years before Jesus came. He says, this this Holy One, Jesus, will not decay in the grave. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. 
fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of what the resurrection of the Messiah, that he would not be abandoned to the realm of dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. We've seen him. We've seen the resurrected Christ. His tomb is empty. They weren't very far from the tomb of Jesus. uh, They could have gone and checked it out for themselves. They were right there in Jerusalem. God has exalted him to the right hand of God, and he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see now and and hear. And so uh, Peter begins to quote not only from Joel, but he quotes from the prophet David, and he's talking about the person of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Well, that brings us to the fourth part of the sermon, and it's the people's response. The people's response. And uh, let's, let's look at how the people responded to this, uh, this message. Here's how he concludes uh, verse uh, 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, he reminds them again, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. The word literally means stunned. They were shocked that the person that was on the cross that day was the Messiah. And so they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That's a great question to ask anytime we study God's word, read God's word, hear God's word being preached. What shall we do? And Peter answers that question in verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does he tell him to do? Two things. I want you to repent. What does repent mean? Repent basically means to have a change of mind. You thought you were doing the right thing, but you killed the Messiah. Now you need to do a 180, and you need to repent of that sin. But he also says you need to be baptized. Now, Acts 2.38 is an interesting uh, Verse, and I remember. If, in fact, it's haven't been down I seventy five south in a long time. But when we used to drive down to Florida on I seventy five, there's a church right off of I seventy five, and on the side of their brick building, they have this in big letters Acts two thirty eight, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. It was the Church of Christ. Uh, the Church of Christ denomination, and this is this is one of their verses. They believe that you not only need to repent of your sins, but you also have to be baptized in order to be saved. I had a friend that was a uh, came to Christ uh, 
kind of later in his life, uh, well, not, not real late, he was 18, maybe 17, 18 years old, and graduated from high school, and uh, did not come from a Christian family, and he ended up at a, a college that some people directed him to, and he, he didn't know it was here in Michigan, it was a college that was sponsored by the Church of Christ. And he got to that college, and they began to tell him that, uh, talk to him in conversation, and they're like, you're not saved. <laughs> Why? Because you have not been baptized in the church of Christ. We are the church of Christ. And he got very, very confused and um, ended up dropping out of that college and uh, you know, going, going, going somewhere else. So what do you do when uh, Scripture appears to contradict itself? You always compare Scripture with Scripture. And, and here in this uh, text here, uh, the, the phrase, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, r- really could better be translated, repent and because of your forgiveness of sins, be baptized. And so baptism is the outward symbol that we've accepted Jesus as our Savior. It has no salvation value. The thief on the cross uh, put his face in Jesus in his last moment. What did Jesus say? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. And so the people's response, they're asking, what shall we do? Peter tells them, you need to come to Christ. You need to repent of your sins. And you need to publicly profess your faith in Jesus. Verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord, all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them. He pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. That'd be a good verse for our culture today. <laughs> save yourselves from this corrupt generation, our culture. Look at this verse, verse 41. Those who accepted or received his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. What was the response? 3,000 people that had come to the Feast of Pentecost, heard Peter's message, put their faith in Jesus, and were baptized. And now we're going to discover the growth of the church through the book of Acts. It started with 120 in that upper room waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Ten days later, Pentecost comes. 3,000 people come into the church, and now there's 3,120 people. They come from all over the known world. Uh, Some people wonder, how did the church at Rome start? Paul wrote a a letter to the the Romans, and uh, Paul didn't quite make it there. Well, here's how the church at Rome started. There were people from Rome who came there on the day of Pentecost who went back to Rome and started a church. And so uh, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ and were baptized. I began to picture in my mind, well, how did those baptisms work? Um, Was it just the apostles who did the baptizing? I did the math. uh, 12 into 3,000 comes out to what? 250 people each. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be a lot of people to baptize in one day. Maybe some of those other early believers helped. Uh, I think the most I, I've ever baptized in one service is like nine or ten people. So if it was just the 12 apostles doing it, they, they, believe me, they would have been tired that day. 
if they baptized 250 people, maybe they, they spread that responsibility out. But that is the day of Pentecost. The church was born in dramatic fashion, dramatic fashion. Well, let's think about four life lessons, and we're going to conclude here in the next 10 minutes. Um, four life lessons from Acts chapter 2. So what does this mean for us today? And uh, let's, let's look at life lesson number one is this. God uses imperfect people. God uses... That's good news, isn't it? <laughs> because we're all what fallen, imperfect people. And that's the kind of people that, that God uses. I like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. He says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things to nullify the things that are. So God, God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? I mean, he used 12 men who were uneducated Galileans uh, as his 12 disciples. And guess who what it was that stood up on the day of Pentecost and gave that explanation and sermon? It was Peter. Who what? Less than two months earlier? Remember what Peter did? <laughs> no, I'm not a part of that. Nope, I don't know him. Little, a little handmade girl. Aren't you one of Jesus' followers? No, no. <laughs> and now here we are six weeks later, and what God's using Peter to preach and boldly proclaim to Christ to a large crowd and 3,000 people coming to the kingdom. I don't care what's in your past. I don't care how bad you have uh, fallen short, whatever sin you've committed, there's forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And uh, when God forgives us of our sins, he removes them as far as the east is from the west. He says, I'll remember them no more. doesn't mean that God forgets them. It means he will not hold them against us. And God uses broken, imperfect people for his kingdom. One of the things that, uh, as I see my my mom this afternoon, and uh, my mom had a very difficult home life, um, has a heart for hurting people, has a, a heart for sharing Jesus, and uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, her first husband before she married my dad after my mom died was also a pastor. He pastored a church in uh, Illinois, uh, died of a massive heart attack at 39. Um, but somebody from that church uh, came to Grand Rapids and, and visited uh, my mom just a couple weeks ago and, and posted on, on Facebook that my mom, two weeks ago, led one of the workers at Rest Haven to Christ. And uh, my mom posted, I guess God's not quite finished with me yet. Um, God uses broken people. God uses imperfect people. Uh, and he used Peter, and uh, he wants to use you as well. Secondly, God is sovereign over every circumstance of our life. God is in control or sovereign over every circumstance of our life. There are no surprises with God. 
There's surprises with us. <laughs> that happens all the time. We get a phone call, we get some news, and we're surprised. Nothing surprises God because he knows the end from the beginning. God never says, uh-oh, I didn't see that coming. He knows every circumstance and situation of our lives, everything that we're facing. And it's interesting that he's sovereign over the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's in control of, of, of all of it. Look at Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon. He's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This did not surprise God. In fact, it was part of his plan before time even began. And so uh, this horrible death by crucifixion that the Romans invented, that Jesus experienced, what, that was all part of God's plan. And so God is in control of every circumstance of our life. The betrayal by G Judas. Did that hurt Jesus? I, I, it had to. I mean, Jesus was a man just like us. He had feelings. He had emotions. He got weary. He got tired. But it was part of God's plan. And so God is sovereign over every circumstance of our life. Matthew chapter 10 says the, the sparrow doesn't fall, but he's aware of it. He knows the number of hairs on our head. Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verse 13, the author of Hebrews writes, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees and knows everything. And so in Isaiah chapter 40, that great chapter that talks about um, how great our God is, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27, Isaiah writes, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Why are you saying God doesn't know what's going on in your life? Because he does. And then Isaiah writes about how great God is and his greatness and his majesty. And so um, God is in control of every aspect of our life, and we can, we can trust him, can't we? And number three, quickly here, every word of Scripture will be fulfilled. Every word of Scripture. So, uh, so much of Scripture is prophecy, isn't it? It's, it's, it's speaking about the future. And much of it has already been fulfilled. And Acts chapter 2 was what? Fulfillment of Scripture of Joel chapter 2. And what we know from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, Jesus says, every jot and every tittle, every little cross T and dotted I will be fulfilled. And so every word of Scripture will come to pass. And uh, what, are, what are we looking forward to is in, in our current culture and world today, the, the Bible says, what, Jesus is coming again. Just as he came the first time, he's coming a second time. And three times in the last chapter of the Bible, it says, Behold, I come quickly. It means suddenly. And so every prophecy, every word of Scripture will be fulfilled. And uh, we can have confidence in that. Lastly, and then we're done, life lesson number four. 
God's word always demands a response. God's word always demands a response. How did the, the people, the crowds there, once they realized what they had done and they were convicted, they asked the question, what, what should we do? How should we respond? Uh, James writes in James chapter 1, doesn't he? Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. In other words, when we read the Bible, when we hear God's truth, it should not just be an academic, academic exercise. We should always be saying, is there, is there a command that God wants me to do something? Is, is there a promise in this passage that I need to hold on to? Um, God's word always demands a response. In Acts chapter 16, when uh, the Apostle Paul is preaching to the, um, those on Mars Hill in Athens and to the academic elite, and he's there at the Parthenon and he sees uh, all these uh, idols and different gods, and uh, he says, hey, I, I want to talk to you about the unknown God. And he preaches about, about who Jesus is to, to the crowds there. And uh, there was a response, and some believed, some did not believe, and others mocked and made fun of Paul. So we can't be neutral when it comes to God's word. God's word always demands a response. James chapter 4, verse 17, we read, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So if we know something that God says we should do and we don't do it, the Bible calls that sin. So we can sin just by doing nothing. God's word always demands a response. So four months ago when John and Becky Shirley, well, John Shirley was here for the first time. And John's got this ministry called the Live Global and Love Goes Home and uh, uh, ministering to kids in the Dominican Republic and ministering to kids in Haiti and, and now uh, eventually going into India to rescue kids from the streets. And when he shared that ministry that, that touches and changes lives, we as a church had to ask ourselves, what should we do? How should we respond? I knew that Sunday in my heart, and some of you echoed that, that we, we cannot just say, well, that was a nice sermon, John, and God bless you as you go down to the Dominican Republic and rescue kids off the streets. No, and out of your prayerful generosity, we were able to give them a gift of $20,000 last Sunday that will rescue 40 kids off the streets and change their lives forever. What should we do? God's word always demands a response. How should we respond today? Well, um, we've been preaching to the choir, but if you've never received Jesus as your Savior, that's, that's the first response. You need to put your faith and trust in him, repent of your sin, and place your faith in Jesus and his death on the cross for your salvation. 
Baptism, it can be a confusing issue in uh, many, many churches, but we believe baptism then is, is your uh, public profession of faith. It's, it's, the, it's the, a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we see a pattern in Scripture that people come to faith in Christ, and then as we saw here in Acts chapter 2, they're baptized. It's a proclamation that you're a follower of Jesus. What should we do? God uses imperfect people. And God has a plan for you and God has a ministry for you. So maybe our response is, uh, God, how do you want to use me today? One of the great ways of doing that is simply to get our eyes off of self. We're all all naturally self-focused and begin to think about others. That was the life of Jesus, wasn't it? He didn't even, at times, he didn't even have time to eat. They're like, hey, Jesus, you need to eat. He says, my, my food is to do the will of God. And, and he had an urgency in, in doing God's plan in his life. God's word always demands a response. Maybe you're facing a circumstance today that is um, challenging. And your response is to recognize that God's aware of that. And you're going to trust him. And oftentimes God doesn't show us the whole staircase at one time, does he? Sometimes he does, but normally it's, what, one step at a time. And forsaking all, I'm going to trust you. And I know that you've got a plan, even though right now I don't understand. That's what faith is all about. Well, Acts chapter 2, that's where uh, the church began. That's where the roots of every church began And we're going to continue the study of the book of Acts and see uh, God work in great ways. And we're going to see two power sources through the book of Acts. It's what? Prayer and it's the Holy Spirit. So let's uh, let's join me in prayer, please. Lord, uh, thank you for uh, this passage and this. uh, Thank you for the boldness of Peter to stand up and proclaim Jesus to thousands and thousands of people. Lord, we thank you that you use fallen, broken, imperfect people, and that's all of us. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for salvation. Lord, um, I pray that uh, you would just encourage our hearts today uh, to um, see how we can encourage and minister to others. And Lord, we just... uh, Thank you that uh, you are the, the head of the church and you are building your church. And Lord, we uh, ask that you would continue to uh, speak to our hearts. Help us to not just be hearers, but help us to be doers today. Uh, Lord, whether that means that uh, there's someone that uh, needs to put their faith in Jesus uh, right now. And pray that sinner's prayer. Lord, I... I I know I'm a sinner and I know that you died on the cross for me and right now I repent of my sin and put my faith in Jesus as my Savior. Lord, maybe there's somebody here and you're tugging at their heart to to follow you in baptism. Uh, Lord, maybe it's about a ministry. Lord, uh, Lord, speak to us and help us to have the courage to obey and to follow. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.